0: It was such a pleasure to talk with my longtime friend and colleague, dialysis nurse, David Wilson. In this episode, he discusses the intense training dialysis nurses get, emergencies in dialysis, and the emotional connections that are formed with these chronic long-term patients. I love his empathetic approach of meet the patient where they are, not where we think they should be. When you hear his story of why he became a nurse, you'll understand divine intervention. In the five-minute snippet, will somebody please get Dave some blue cod? Here is David Wilson. You're listening to the Conversing Nurse Podcast. I'm Michelle, your host, and this is where together we explore the nursing profession, one conversation at a time. Well, hi, David. Welcome to the show.
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me. I'm, it's a privilege to be able to talk to you today.
0: Oh, thank you, David. It's, I'm, I've been excited to talk to you because I know very little about dialysis nursing, nephrology nursing. So uh, the way I like to do things is just kind of jump right in. So tell me about what a dialysis nurse does.
1: Well, basically, just that. We uh, are assigned patients. We have orders written by the nephrologist or may have standing orders, but we will, in the acute setting in the hospital, we had an area where we had six beds that uh, two nurses, uh, two beds per one nurse, and then we had a, a dialysis technician, which would help set the machines up. We'd look at the orders, we would access the patient, and then we would dialyze the patients. And generally, Dialysis treatments went from three to four hours every other day. But in the acute setting, sometimes we would do it once daily for several days, depending on the patient's condition. Um, so we sit and monitor the patients very closely because we're, we're taking unstable patients and making them more unstable to make them stable, so to speak, because we're removing probably about uh, 300, 400 uh, milliliters of blood at a time going through the machine and the dialyzer and then putting it back in the patient. So we're recirculating and doing basically, we're filtering in a three and a half hour treatment, depending on how fast we run the machine. Usually it's about 65 to 80 liters of blood are filtered. Now, bear in mind, we only have what, five or six liters of blood. So we're constantly refiltering. The kidneys can filter thousands of liters of blood a day. So they're very active little organs. So we watch the patients closely because there's things that can happen, such as uh, blood pressure can drop rapidly if we pull off too much fluid too fast. Uh, they can start to have muscle cramps, which means we're pulling up too much fluid, or we've taken perhaps the uh, electrolyte levels have dropped. So we're constantly monitoring every fifteen minutes, taking vital signs and and keeping an eye on them and their accesses. Uh, it could be scary. Something I learned early on in my career with renal patients is um, they're basically walking Murphy's Law. What can go wrong will go wrong with them. So you've got to kind of just keep an eye on the various things that happen uh, during dialysis.
0: You worked in an inpatient setting. What other settings can dialysis nurses work in?
1: Dialysis nurses can also work in chronic units, um, which they're all all over the place. And those are patients who actually come in on their own or they're, or they're brought in by wheelchair, or whatever, depending on their, their mobility. Um, they have standing appointments. They come in at a certain time, usually Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Thursday, uh, Saturday, and Tuesdays. At the, at the chronic units, we use more technicians to put the patients on, but in the state of California, techs aren't allowed to access uh, central venous catheters tunneled catheters. And so the RN is responsible for that. But the RNs are also responsible for monitoring the patients, giving the medications during treatment, that being maybe antibiotics toward the end of the treatment or giving uh, epigen or iron to uh, help facilitate blood production in the body. There's also peritoneal dialysis, which is a different form of dialysis. And that is monitoring the patients because they do that at home on their own. They're trained to do that.
0: So would that be would that nurse be uh like a home health nurse or is the nurse like still a dialysis nurse but just sees them in the home setting?
1: No, they see the typically the PD patients come into the office, to the nurse's office. They're at the chronic unit. Okay. And they're they're followed up there.
0: Well, let's talk about the patients for a second. So Is there a certain demographic that you see? And talk about the comorbidities that dialysis patients have.
1: Yes. Uh, Typically, what we see with patients in the acute setting are people who are either chronic kidney failure, and that's due to the number one cause in the United States anyway, is, is uncontrolled diabetes. And we see that in so many age groups from from young people all the way up to older people who d- develop diabetes in their in their older years. Uh, we also see uh, people with uh, uncontrolled hypertension, which will ruin the kidneys, hmm. people with heart, chronic heart disease, uh, heart failure, things like that. Or or it might also be hereditary such things as polycystic uh, kidney disease, where the kidneys develop these oversized cysts and the kidneys get huge and they cease to function. And the only way to to, uh, cure that or or take care of that is for them to either get a kidney transplant or go on dialysis. So there's a number of comorbidities that do that. But number one is diabetes, number two is hypertension, three is uh, congestive heart failure. In the United States, the three groups we see more of within their own demographic is African American, Native Americans, and Asian Americans have higher rates of kidney failure.
0: Okay, so these patients are they're pretty sick, but they're they're stable because the dialysis is making them somewhat better with all, with all these other comorbidities, I guess you could say.
1: Dialysis does about 15% of what our kidneys can do. So it's it's not curing them. It's keeping them stable, keeping them at a certain state of homeostasis. It's working in, in removing fluid. It's working in removing electrolytes that build up urea.
0: So I would think that your patients need a lot of education. So how do you go about doing that i guess in in each setting is there a certain time that's set aside for education or is it just as you're accessing their you know their port and you're just chatting and asking them about what they've been doing or how they've been feeling how does that go
1: in some cases if it's an acute onset of of kidney injury or di- or, or renal failure The doctors will explain to them they need to be on dialysis and what's going to happen, but pretty much it's up to us to educate the patients what we're doing and what's going on, because it is kind of a big mystery, um, I think, to patients and and to their families. So it's up to us to explain to them this is what happens during dialysis. This is what we want you to look out for if you start feeling this way or that way. But, you know, I tried to always ensure them that even though they feel terrible now because of the, the the toxins built up in the body or the excess fluid they may have that give us time give us a couple of weeks and you will start feeling better. It's a scary situation for them.
0: Well yeah I was I was kind of gonna touch on the emotional side for them. so some of the patients that you get are patients that are newly diagnosed and and they're coming so they're just starting their treatment. And I could imagine how I would feel if, you know, I got told you're in kidney failure and you need dialysis. So a lot of times when you're seeing the patients, are they still kind of in shock and, and maybe not believing? Or talk to me about how some of those are managing like their new diagnosis.
1: I wouldn't say they're in shock. They're just... Don't understand the whole process of what's going on, and you need to be reassuring to them. That, you know, as I said, that that this is something they're they're going to need to do uh, probably the rest of their life, and they need to follow certain rules, so to speak, of, of of dialysis because their their life changes. They have to change their diet. They have to change the amount of fluid that they take in, and a lot of times they'll say, "But I'm still I'm still making urine." Yes, you're making urine, but it's filtrate, it's not urine. You're you're not your kidneys aren't clearing the toxins, it's just getting rid of fluid. Mm. But as time goes on, they stop making urine altogether. And so water has nowhere to go. That's when they get themselves in trouble.
0: I would imagine that you see quite a few patients that are non-compliant in terms of their diet and maybe their medications and so forth. How do you approach that with a patient?
1: I learned early on when I was taking care, doing, doing bedside uh, med surge nursing care with renal patients. And I learned that really the only control they have in their life is their noncompliance. They, many are compliant, but the ones that we would see frequently uh, at the hospital were noncompliant. They'd come in fluid overloaded. Uh, they would come in with potassiums at eight or nine. When normally is three and a half to four and a half or five. Um, so we would see that. But you know it's it's a shock, it's a sudden change, especially with people who uh, might grow up on different uh, ethnic diets and they have beans, potatoes, tomatoes, citrus, things that are high in potassium. and suddenly you come along and tell them, you can't have that anymore. And they're they're saying that you know, I grew up on this and and you try to educate them in that. And we do have dietitians. We work closely with them on that. But just suddenly your life is turned around, and it's a big shock to them. And, and a lot of people, because of their, their demographic uh, situation, they may not understand exactly what's going on, no matter how much we try to tell them.
0: Yeah, gosh, I would imagine. And those, man, those cultural dietary practices are so ingrained. Mm -hmm. I just, it would be very, very hard to change. You would need, I guess you would have to feel so bad that making such a huge change in your life would, you know, be worth feeling better and living longer. So Mm -hmm. gosh, I, I would think that would be really difficult. And I think as nurses, we get really frustrated when our patients aren't I guess receiving our education, or taking it to heart, or understanding—and we we're so good at saying things in so many different ways to help them understand—and giving them printouts, and you know, just all these different ways that we educate them—and we get so frustrated as nurses and providers that that they're not getting it and they're not making those changes to to help themselves and make themselves better.
1: Well, that's that's where we, I think, as not not just dialysis nurses, but as nurses all in general, we really take to heart that, that we want to help these people, uh, help our patients to do the, the best they can in, in their situation. And in this situation, it's going to be for the rest of their life. Even if they get a kidney transplant, they're still going to have to be very careful with what they do. And you've, you've got to have an empathy for these people because, we're we're not in their shoes. We don't live in their situation. And so we have to come to an understanding of where they are, you know, meet the patient where they are, not what we expect them to be where we are.
0: I love that. That's such a great philosophy, it, you know, especially in, in nursing and medicine, but just in life in general. I love that. So let's talk, because uh, you did... N- Talk about transplant for a minute, and I wanted to talk about kind of the emotional toll. Do you have patients that are set up to get a transplant? Like maybe they're on a transplant list? Would you know that? How does that work?
1: Just about every patient that goes on dialysis, they pretty much get put on the list. And of course, there's not enough kidneys, there's not enough kidneys to go around depending on where they are, because what I have witnessed in the years I did dialysis or the 30 years I've taken care of renal patients, the the transplant centers look at the patient's compliance. And -hmm. I would stress to the patients, look, you're going to get put on, your doctor's going to put you on a transplant list, but you have to show up for your appointments. You have to take your medications. You have to live things right. Because if you're coming in, every other week to the hospital because your potassiums are up or because your fluid overloaded, those are strikes against you. And the transplant centers aren't going to put a kidney into somebody who's going to blow it out in a year or so. They're going to give it to somebody who's going to be very compliant and hang on to that kidney for 12, 15 years.
0: Yeah, so just another reason, another motivation to you know really take care of yourself and be compliant and follow what is recommended for you. So that's a really good point. How do you as a nurse manage a patient's death like, you know, say they they just they pass away or maybe they pass away like during dialysis? I I would imagine that you guys get pretty familiar with these patients, with their lives, their you know, they talk about their grandkids and so forth. So how do you manage that as a nurse?
1: That's a that's a really good question, because we do get to know these people on a personal basis and their families. We talk with them during those three hours. And, and you know me, I'm kind of a verbose person. I do like to talk to people. <laughs> I'm all right. You don't have to laugh about it. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but. You get to know these people and you do talk to them and you do personal things and they'll they'll ask me, hey, how are your grandkids? Or, you know, you went on vacation. So it's almost like they're a neighbor, so to speak. And when you do see them declining, um, it, it is sad. It is hard. I had I had one patient one time uh, who I've come to find out I went to high school with their son. I never knew that until he came in to visit one day. But a couple of years ago, I was dialyzing her and she kept coming in more and more frequently. And I was hooking her up one day. She had a a fistula and I was putting the needles in and such. And she asked me, she said, David, she said, what if I don't want to do this anymore? And I told her, I said, It's your life. It's your right. You don't have to be on dialysis anymore. But I said, I would strongly suggest you talk to your children and family about this because this is a big decision. And she said, "Okay." Went to check on her when I got back to work a couple of days later, and she'd gone home on comfort care. She talked to her family, and they agreed with her, and and they let her go. And that was a sad day for me because I, not that I looked forward to her coming in, but when she did come in, I looked forward to talking to her. Because She had a real sharp, quick wit, (laughs) you know, (laughs) so it it was it was fun to to talk with her. And and that's been a number of patients we've dealt with. And then we have other patients who are just horribly noncompliant. I had one throw a tray across the room at me one day because he didn't get what he wanted for breakfast. Mm. You know, just so many different personalities you have to deal with. But that, again, is, is every every nursing situation, not just dialysis.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I just could imagine that you're spending so much time with them, you know, that, yeah, you would get to know them and their families and the same for them. So that's got to be hard. Um, David, do you guys see any pediatric patients?
1: No, uh, there are protocols in the hospital. If if there is a child that comes in an acute kidney failure and they, we can't get them up to Valley Children's. Uh, We can dialyze them, but a nephrologist has to be there with us the whole time. Okay. So uh, otherwise, you know, normally we work autonomously. Um, But the only one I remember is when I was a student nurse in pediatrics, when you and I were working together uh, before I graduated, there was a young man who was 12 years old that had a genetic disease. And I remember, I think it was Dr. Smith put a a line in him and, and he was dialyzed until they got him up to Valley Children's. That's the only pediatric patient I've ever seen.
0: That sounds like a very familiar uh, scenario that you just talked about. I, I I think I remember that. And wow, Dr. Smith, what a great guy.
1: <laughs> He's a character, all right. <laughs> yeah, Indiana Jones, right? <laughs>
0: um, well, let's talk about your Pete's days because, um, you know, of course, I know you because we worked together way back in the day. But uh, what is your background? Talk a little bit about that.
1: I didn't go to nursing school until I was about 33 years old. Uh, I never planned to be a nurse. I worked at a, a factory that made uh, carbon paper, carbonless paper, and business forms. And they were big. They were nation, national. But with the onset of computers and such, I was working on the quality control lab. I saw that there was not going to be need for business forms like there was back in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Uh, and so I came home one day after working a graveyard shift. And I told my wife, she asked she asked, me, what's wrong? And I was getting the kids ready for school. And I said, well, you know, we got this new computer at work in the lab. And I said, it does so much stuff. I said, I don't think I'm going to have a job in two years. And of course, the loving woman she is, she says, I'm so tired of bitching about work. Do something <laughs> about it or shut up. I went to when I went to bed that morning after getting the kids to school I, I just said Lord if there's anything I can do that I can say at the end of my life that I did something for somebody else other than myself show me the way and over a period of a few months I started thinking more and more about nursing my mother was an RN my grandmother was an RN so it was in the family but I never thought it would appeal to me but it just seemed more appealing as I thought about it So I. I talked to Dr. Lynn Mervis at, at COS and right. a lot of my wife thought of my wife's clients were RNs. And they were saying we need more men in nursing. And so I, I explored it and I thought, what the heck? Went and took some prerequisite classes just to see if I was a better student than I was in high school and found <laughs> that I was doing OK. And so uh, my wife and I, we, we planned for it. I, I went uh, three semesters and quit my full time job and became a full time student and uh, got through it and realized I really did like it. I, that's when I learned nursing, I believe anyway, is, is truly a calling, it's a ministry of sorts. It's not just a job. I don't think people just choose nursing just because I'll be a nurse. You know, I, th- I think we're, we're kind of led into that, be it spiritually or emotionally, I don't know, but it's something that, that I wish I would have gotten into earlier because it's been a fulfilling job career.
0: Wow. I love your story. And I had no idea. It reminds me, I interviewed uh, Dr. Dianthe Hoffman and she said the very same thing that you're called to nursing. It's not just a job. And I think many nurses and many of our, you know, a lot of the nurses in our audience could totally attest to that. So, um, and I would say that Nursing really fits you, or you really fit nursing, so I think it was a really good call on your part.
1: I certainly enjoy it. Uh, that's why I went back to the chronic unit i wasn't although I was ready to get out of the hospital you know uh, at sixty five I wasn't quite ready to get away from from patients and so i i I volunteered with the county giving. Uh, COVID shots out at the, the ag center doing drive-by shootings. You know, they never got out of the car. We just gave them the shot and they took off, you know? Um, and that's what I, I worked with a number of retired nurses and just realized I, I, I like the camaraderie of, of nursing friends that you have, you develop special friendships with people and, you know, you miss that. And so that's why I went back in the chronic unit just to, to do a day a week, keep you out of trouble and and to, to stay with it. <laughs>
0: Well, you're absolutely right. You know, I'm newly retired and what I miss the most about nursing is those relationships, Um, of course, the patients and their families. But yeah, that is really, um, it's it's difficult and it takes some getting used to. So do dialysis nurses need any kind of special education? So obviously you have to be a nurse, but then kind of training do you get
1: that's a good question because it it it's pretty intense training um i was fortunate i had i worked with some really good nurses you know chris rogers and cynthia shear uh larry yoda gloria vincetti they were all really good in helping me but they would assign one experienced dialysis nurse and we would work in tandem uh and we would do a full 8 weeks uh hands on and then and after that, you would kind of they they kind of left the leash out and let you start working more on your own rather than being under their their umbrella to develop the autonomy. But then after six months, you were on your own and we started taking call. but it's about a six month training period to to be able to do that because dealing with the machines, knowing what the different alarms are, how to set them up, uh, how to troubleshoot what happens, what's going on, knowing that uh, looking at the different, pressure gauges if a patient's blood is clotting in the filter, which can be a problem. Because if if you if the circuit clots, you lose about three, four hundred mLs of blood. And you can't let that happen too often, obviously. Um, so and typically dialysis patients are anemic anyway. Their hemoglobins run generally anywhere from eight to 10. They live in that neighborhood as to where for us normally it's around 13. So they can't afford to lose much blood. So there is there is a lot of training with that. But once you, once you get that down, uh, my biggest fear after learning the machines, because that's all technical, was, was learning how to access the grafts and fistulas. And I think every new dialysis nurse, that, that's a real scary thing to deal with.
0: Yeah, wow. We'll talk about some of the emergencies that happen uh, during dialysis.
1: The biggest one is the patient becomes hypotensive, suddenly their blood pressures drop. To sixty systolic, you'll be you'll be talking to them. Their eyes roll to the back of their head; they become unconscious. Um, you do a emergent blood pressure. You turn off the ultrafiltration so you don't stop pulling. So you stop pulling water. Uh, slow the machine down, and uh, if the blood pressure is down, generally we'll give them a bolus like two hundred ml of saline through the machine rapidly, and they they wake up. It's just lack of lack of volume. I remember Dr. Haley saying the number one reason why dialysis patients code during or after dialysis is because we've pulled too much fluid. And although they have a heartbeat, there's just not enough volume to circulate the blood. Mm -hmm. So we give them 500 of saline and generally most of the time they come back.
0: Yeah, well, that would be very scary.
1: It is very scary. (laughs) You know, um, or a patient will code. Suddenly, they they'll they'll go into a, a, a bad heart rhythm. You know, and the the first thing we're trained to do is immediately give the blood back. You know, uh, get that volume back in them, I and let's see what happens there. And of course, you would call a rapid response or call a code blue. Um, but we would keep the needles and things hooked up in case they needed to give the medications. We could give it through their their central lines rapidly rather than in peripherally in the arm or something.
0: Is there a reason why a patient's dialysis would get canceled? Like if they were scheduled on a certain day, why would it be canceled?
1: Typically, we didn't see them canceling it. The doctors might look at the labs and say they don't need it today. We'll mm-hmm. do them on their next scheduled day uh, because the labs look good they're, and, and that's going well. And, and it might be because we're too busy. We don't have the staff, we have too many patients, and so we'll ask the doctors, look, doctor so-and-so, he was done yesterday, or she was done two days ago, her labs look good today, and they'll say, okay, go ahead, and, and you know we can pull them to tomorrow or the next day. So that's generally the reason why we see them, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll cancel a treatment. Or if they happen to start to recover on, on the acute kidney injuries, which is a different form of kidney failure, uh, they may start to recover, and the doctors want to see which way the kidneys are going to go, and not mess with the dialysis.
0: Okay, so like rationing of care is that's a real thing uh, when we don't have the resources, whether it's people or you know machines or whatever it is.
1: It, it it comes to the point where sometimes you have to just triage your patients like they would in in the emergency room. You know which one needs it worse or or what have you. When we used to have to take call, now we have night nurses, but when we'd have to take call, we'd get called in and generally it was people who would come in who had missed their their chronic treatments for a day or two or maybe even a week or two and their electrolytes are all messed up or they're just full of water. I've pulled as much as six and a half liters of fluid out of a patient. Or same as kilos. so you know you're, you're talking almost a, a gallon and a half of water you pull out in a matter of few hours. So along
0: those lines, are there certain times that you're busier like after Thanksgiving and <laughs> those kinds <Yes>. of times.
1: <laughs> Holidays, it, and it's kind of funny because it, it seems like more in the winter time we were busier. And in the summertime, we weren't quite as busy. Things slowed down in the spring and summer for some reason. But yeah, after holidays, you know, 4th of July, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Cinco de Mayo, where where people are going to have parties and stuff, uh, we we see patients coming in with fluid overload. It's generally fluid overload or uh, high potassium. Mm. And potassium, people don't, we we have to explain to the dialysis patients that potassium is a very important electrolyte intracellularly. Extracellular is bad for you, you know um, I, I, I bring it home to them that when a patient uh, goes in for open heart surgery, of course they have to stop the heart once they're on the, the bypass pump, and the way they stop the heart is with a huge bolus of potassium chloride. Hmm. And that stops the heart. And so it causes horrible arrhythmias. low potassium high potassium can cause really high bad arrhythmias in the heart and could and be fatal.
0: Dave, can a patient consume alcohol when they're, you know, getting treated? Like a patient in chronic kidney failure, can they consume alcohol?
1: Yes, they can. Uh, remember that the, the it's the liver that metabolizes out the alcohol and turns it to sugar. So uh, it's, it's not a renal function. But if they're going to drink alcohol, I would recommend to them that they, I had recommended, you know, Maybe go to vodka or hard liquor <laughs> because, well, it's higher. It's it's higher in alcohol, so you're not consuming as much fluid. Okay. Because it, it's all a fluid balance. And it, it. You, you 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 know you drink a couple cans of beer, you're you're getting up there as far as fluid goes. So you got to yeah. be careful with that. Uh, typically, the doctors will have patients who try to put them on like a maybe 1,200 mLs a day of fluid, free fluid. And that's if they're not not making urine at all. And the only way you're going to lose fluid is through insensible loss of sweating and breathing. And that does that's only what about 800 mls a day?
0: Gosh, those fluid restrictions! I would not do very well on those. I drink a lot of fluid, so that was well. We should
1: you need to keep those kidneys flushed.
0: There you go. Right? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, let's talk for a second about this California Proposition Twenty Nine. Uh, this is a bill that is now on the ballot for the third time. Uh, tell me, just tell me what you know about this and if you think it's a good idea or not.
1: I, last time I voted no on it, I voted no again. I read through it and uh, I try to read all the propositions, but this, of course, touches home with me because of what they want to do. Uh, Prop 29 is saying that they want to have a physician, a nephrologist, or a nephrology trained PA or nurse practitioner to be at the clinic during operating hours is how I understand it. Now these chronic clinics go from four in the morning to sometimes 10 at night and I don't know of any physician who is going to sit there all day and hope that maybe something happens because us dialysis nurses, were highly trained. We can, we can troubleshoot. We know when a patient's starting to get in trouble and we know how to deal with that. We don't need a doctor there. And the only thing the doctor could do probably also, because we have limited drugs to be able to run a code, we have crash carts, we still have to call 911 and get them to the hospital. So to have a physician there is just a very costly thing. And dialysis is covered under the Medicare Act. And so the, the uh, reimbursement is not something where these companies make a lot of money. Yes, they are for profit, a lot of them are, but they, they, it's a narrow profit margin. And this would really cause, I think, clinics to shut down, like the ads are saying. I think there's a lot of truth to that.
0: Like you, I read all these propositions. And, you know, one of the things that I thought was really silly was that this proposition says that the clinic needs to report their data to the Mm -hmm. state, to the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare. And they already do that. Yes. So, you know, I don't. I don't understand why they're pushing for this. Um, there's a severe shortage of physicians of for providers. So um, hopefully, this will be the last time that this gets on the ballot because I do think that it's it's going to be a big no. But um, thank you for your take on it. Certainly. What kind of hours do you work? If you're a dialysis nurse in a clinic, are you there that whole time?
1: We would only do typically 12 hours, like in the hospital. Okay. And do three days a week, uh, just like in the hospital. Now, up until, I don't know, four or five years ago at the hospital, we would do our three days a week, but we would have to take call. And of course, most of us would take call on our maybe the last day we worked of the week, Let's say I worked a Monday, Tuesday, and a Thursday, I would take call Thursday night. Now, if we were slow enough, we'd go home that we could punch out early, go home, maybe take a nap and get prepared in case we get called in. Sometimes it was busy enough to where um, we were there maybe from six in the morning till 10, 12 at night, or there are some cases we were there 24 hours. So that's where your training comes in because you have to be able to react. Uh, even when you're a little bit fatigued. But there's just some innate thing built into us. I think it's something in nurses and and firemen and policemen and soldiers, whatever. That There's just mechanisms in our body that allow us to do that.
0: Yeah, I remember those 12-hour shifts. And uh, (laughs) I look back and I go, God, how did I do that? But I think you just explained it so well about there's just something – where you just you just keep going, right?
1: Mhm.
0: Yeah. Well, this has been so informative for me today. I hope our listeners can say the same. I started with very little knowledge of what a dialysis nurse does and you've explained everything really well. So, I thank you for thank being you. here. Thank you. Yeah, uh so you know that at the end I do this little thing called the 5-minute snippet, right? Okay. And it's just fun. It's a chance for our listeners to kind of know the off-duty side of David Wilson. So are you ready for the five-minute snippet?
1: We'll give it a shot.
0: <laughs> okay, I'm going to set my timer. Here we go. A favorite activity to do with the grandkids?
1: Oh, gosh. Just about everything they want to do. They, they'd love to go for my go for walks. Uh, They like to play little games. My granddaughter loves to draw on her chalkboard and I draw with her. My oldest grandson, he loves nature and loves to go on walks and learns about birds and such. And so I go with him and we have fun. I'll take my binoculars so he can look at things. And I've got two other little ones who's nine months old and the other's two and a half. And of course, the two and a half year old, he's just He's exploring everything, (laughs) Everything. and so he keeps us active. Yeah, we just got back from uh, three days in Disneyland, and just watching the joy on their face to see the characters and to go on the rides and whatnot—it's just an absolute blast. They're just so much fun.
0: Yeah, being a grandparent is such a special relationship. It's there's just none other. Well, there's Um, the old
1: saying that that says, you know, if I'd known grandkids were so much fun, I would have had them first. (laughs) (laughs)
0: So true. Wow. Uh, I know you love to travel. Uh, What's the first thing you do when you get to your destination?
1: Unpack and then (laughs) explore. We've learned that when you get somewhere, especially if you go overseas uh, and the time change is really radical, different. uh, We've learned that try to stay up as late as you can with the people in the area. To get on their time zone quicker, instead of going to the hotel and hopping in bed, trying to catch up on your sleep in your old time zone.
0: Yeah, I love it. Okay. Uh, Can you impersonate any accents?
1: Oh, gosh. Well... I used to do impressions of some of our doctors, but I won't do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's probably a good decision. Yeah, right. <laughs> because, you know, we worked with the, basically the United Nations of doctors with nephrologists. I mean, we yes. had uh, Irish and, and Chinese and, and Indian, Vietnamese. Yes. So, you know, we had quite a few different doctors.
0: Yes, I agree. Enjoyed working with them all. Yes. What is the most widely planted grape in
1: the world? Uh, that I don't know, because <sighs> what I've I learned, you. you stumped me, because what I have learned is every country, every region has a grape that prospers really well, is prolific. And so that's what they grow. So in France, it, it would be mainly a Cabernet grape or a Merlot grape. in the uh, Bordeaux area and the Burgundy area would be the Pinot Noir Chardonnay. Okay. Um, Rhone would be another type. And England, England is actually making wonderful sparkling wines now. They're winning the international competitions, partly because of, wine, because of climate change. They have yes. a longer growing season now.
0: What my source Wait. said was uh, Cabernet. Okay. I know you would know a lot more about wine than I do. Uh, what's your favorite country to drink wine in?
1: Hmm. Well, I really our our first trip was also with you with your brother Chris and, and Mary, sister-in-law, mm-hmm. but uh, was France. But I think Italy would probably okay. be at the top of the list, partly because it has it has more of a Latin influence, and I love that kind of culture. It's very familial. And so you just feel more at home and the wines there are very good. Mm.
0: Well, I know you also like food. So what food can you not find near you that you wish you could? 30 seconds.
1: What food can I find near me that I wish I could? Oh Oh, gosh. Uh, Blue cod. (laughs) When blue we were in New Z- when we were on a wine trip in New Zealand, uh, I had blue cod in the waters there, and it was a delicious fish. The way they prepared it and such. And I was talking to at the meat market there. I was talking to the fish man, and he said he can't get blue cod. He'd never heard of it, but they have it down in New Zealand, Australia. It's absolutely wonderful.
0: Well, it sounds awesome. <laughs> I love fish, so I guess I might have to go to New Zealand to get it. <laughs>
1: It is. Uh, New Zealand is a beautiful country.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much, David, for coming on today and talking all things dialysis nurse. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. I I appreciate you asking me. It's It's been a privilege.
0: Yeah, well, thank you. And you have a great rest of your day.
1: Thank you. You too.
0: Okay, take care. Bye now.